been looking through uh, the tabernacle and many of its features, we recall, again, this is the, the very goodness of God in desiring to provide a place and a space for us to meet with him. What was lost in the Garden of Eden because of sin, God is now restoring and making uh, means for us to be able to come and approach him and meet with him in praise and worship of God. This is a sweet thing that we're seeing here. And we looked at how the tabernacle, just even the very structure and the various design of the tabernacle, the feature of the tabernacle, are all pointing ahead to Jesus because ultimately it's through Jesus by which we're able to come and approach God, isn't it? And so not only does this restore what was lost, but it also points ahead to what we ultimately have in Jesus. So the tabernacle lays out many incredible features of how it all points to Jesus through the sacrifices, through the, uh, the very, again, uh, design and the way that the tabernacle was even structured and, and put together. And we see it even with the priests. And so tonight, we begin to look at the priests and their garments and kind of, again, what, what does that uh, mean for us? What does that have to say about them? What's God's uh, design and order in all of these things? And so we're gonna look at that here this evening. Look at verse one of chapter 28 in Exodus once again, because here we look at the calling of the priests. And so it says, now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, uh, your brother, notice for glory and for beauty. Verse three, so you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. So we're gonna be looking at uh, this great wardrobe. Uh, this is a bit of a fashion show. I should have actually had all the articles of clothing and just, we could have had various people, you know, kind of fashioning them, doing a little catwalk. Maybe, maybe not. That probably wouldn't have gone over well, but. Um, one, hey, okay, it's all good. Um, now, first of all, we see the calling of the priesthood, right? Now, now, why a priesthood? Well, God has set up this whole legal system and religious system some 1,500 years before his son Jesus would come to this world. And this whole function of the law and the priest was to establish how people were to approach God. God was providing a specific means by which people could approach him. It would come through the sacrifices that must be offered at the tabernacle, eventually the temple. It would have to be done through this priestly system that God was ordaining and providing so that we knew the way to come because we couldn't come by our own merits, could we? God is, is setting that very firmly right from the beginning that you're not to come just on your own by your own means, by your own efforts, by your own doing. There needs to be a way that God provides for us to come because we can't do that on our own. And so God is setting this all up. And it would establish, again, just fully for us, the idea that God brings people into fellowship with him through a mediator, a mediator of his choosing that would ultimately point to the, uh, 
the ultimate high priest, which is Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus came into the world, nobody should have been shocked and surprised that he comes and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Yet people seem to reject that notion, but God has always shown that there's a way to approach God, and there's a way to come by a mediator. We need a mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. So Aaron, Moses' brother here, was chosen now to serve as that priest, and and ultimately that high priest that would uh, represent the people before God, but represent God before the people of Israel. And there were four sons of Aaron that were to serve. Now, why were they, they the ones chosen? How come it's Aaron and his four sons? Simply because God chose them. Two of them aren't even gonna last very long, Nadab and Abihu, because they're gonna step out in their own flesh and in their own desire, and they're gonna be taken out. It's not because these are perfect people, it's because God simply chosen them by his grace and by his mercy. And I'm glad for that because we have been brought into the wonderful priesthood of God through Jesus Christ, not by our doing, but because of his grace and his mercy. He tells us in 1 Peter 2, 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So again, our standing with God has nothing to do with our being good or deserving. It's simply the great grace of God, same as how these people are simply chosen of God. Now, these garments were to be holy garments. Now, what made them holy? Now, uh, we're gonna look at a number uh, of the different articles of clothing as we go through and break it down, but what made them holy? How come they were, they were called holy garments as is seen in verse two? Simply because they were set apart for the purpose of being devoted to God. Something's not holy because it's so beautiful and religious. It's beautiful because it's set apart for the Lord. It doesn't need to be beautiful to be holy. It becomes holy or becomes beautiful because it's holy. Simply set apart for the Lord. That's all God is is calling for us too. When he says, be holy as I am holy, is for us to be set apart for him. Set apart from the world, but set apart to him. That's what it is means to be holy. And so these are to be holy garments set apart. Some of them are very ordinary, nothing special to them, but they're holy because they are devoted to the work of the Lord, set apart for him. And so it says that they would be also for glory and for beauty at the end of verse two. Don't you say that? You should make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. I love that. Again, God doesn't just choose beautiful things. He chooses ordinary things and ordinary people and makes them holy. And there's beauty in holiness. This all stems from worshiping a God who is beautiful. See, we don't know what God looks like. I mean, it's it's weird to kind of think sometimes, oh Lord, you know, you're beautiful. We'd sing the song in the day, oh Lord, you're beautiful. I remember having some people come to me and saying, I don't know if we should be singing that because we don't really know what God looks like. How can we say he's, he's not beautiful because of his appearance. He's beautiful because he's God, because he's good, because he's gracious and loving and kind. And so we can sing, he's beautiful. And, and you think about some of the, the Psalms that we see in Psalm 27, four, one thing of desire to the Lord that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 29.2, give unto the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty.
beauty of holiness. And so the Lord certainly is beautiful to behold and he's certainly worthy of all of our praise. So like the priests were to be, um, as a priesthood of believers, to be set apart, now to walk in the beauty of holiness before God, not with specific clothing, but now in the beauty of a life devoted to God. And notice what we read in verse three, Moses was to speak to the gifted artisans. Isn't that cool? These were the ones that had a God-given skill in the tailor business. Isn't that great? How many people are good sewers here? We had a sewing bee here today. Anybody at the sewing bee this afternoon? Some, and, and, no, okay. I think we had a sewing bee. Do we have a sewing bee here? We did, okay. It's great. I'm not sure what they were doing. I would imagine they were sewing is kind of what some of them probably sewing. But it's great, like sometimes we can think, well, you know, I don't really have any gifts to give to the Lord. And yet here's people that were just gifted and they're gifted by God, they're skilled, that's the idea, gifted artisans, they're skilled in this field of simply, you know, craftsmanship, putting things together, sewing, uh, putting the, this, this gar the garments together. Sometimes we can think, well, that's not gonna really be useful for the Lord. What good is that? What good is my craft or my skill gonna do for the Lord? I'm not like, you know, I don't have skills of ministry. No, no, that's ministry right there. Anything that you do unto the Lord is, is ministry and, and something that God gifts us all in certain areas to be used to the Lord and for the Lord. And so here's gifted artisans now. And some of the people might've thought, oh, this is really not anything that can be wholly sanctified or, or, or given to the Lord in ministry. Yet here's God calling them now to a very important task. And notice what we see repeated four times in this chapter, three times just in these first four verses. Anybody know what that is? Can you guys look at that, see what's repeated three times just in these first four verses? that he may minister to me. Right there in verse one, verse three, and verse four. That's important because all we do for the Lord or all that we do, I should say, is to be done for the Lord. When we have that perspective, guess what guys? No job is, is menial or mundane. This is a calling that they are to do and they are to minister to the Lord in this job, in this um, service here. The role of a priest is not to be self-serving. It's not something that they go, oh great, I can really benefit from this now. Oh, this is, or this is really gonna elevate my status in the camp. Man, people are gonna come around me and go, woo, you're a priest, woo. I'll be like, yes, bow down before. No, I mean, like people might think they can really be self-serving, elevate themselves, and yet God says, hold on guys, no, no. You're to minister to me. This isn't about you, you're to minister to me. And we can often get caught up in doing things for the Lord, but when we minister to the Lord, it shifts our focus once again to the one who deserves all of our service and all of our life, being lived in, in devotion and, and lived in service to him. So don't just minister for the Lord, minister to the Lord, do it as an act of worship and devotion to him, because when you do that, no matter what you're doing, begins to have value and importance and meaning behind it. You can do anything, and when you're doing it to the Lord, suddenly you're going, thank you, God, for the opportunity I have to minister to you, no matter what that might look like or what that might be. So it's repeated to remind them, this isn't about you, priests. You got a high calling, no doubt, but it's not about you. 
You're not just doing this for the Lord like it's, uh, no, you're ministering to the Lord in an act of worship now to him. So we look at some of the various clothing here now. Let's bring this up here. So here's the priestly garment, the high priestly garment, I should say. This is what the high priest would be wearing. We're gonna break it down and look at a number of these things. First of all, in verse five, we begin to look at the ephod. So you see the ephod now is this kind of like vest thing that fits over the robe attached by the shoulders. Let's read about it here in verse five. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. So like I said, this ephod is simply like a vest. It's open on the sides, and it's fastened together on the shoulders. It sat over that priestly robe. We continue to read in verse nine, then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone in order of their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. Verse 13, you shall also make settings of gold and you shall uh, make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. Make sure you keep your Bibles open because we're gonna just be reading through a lot of scripture tonight. We're gonna comment on some of them here. But here we see now that on this ephod that's fastened on the shoulders, there's gonna be a stone on each shoulder. And what's gonna be on that stone? Engraved six of the tribes of Israel on one shoulder and the other six tribes of Israel on the other shoulder here. The names of the sons of Israel. Shoulders are often seen as that kind of part of the body that really carries the burden, doesn't it? It's like where you carry that weight. We might say to someone, put your shoulder into it. It's kind of a way of saying, put some effort into it. You know, really lean into that. Put some work behind that here. That's kind of the, the idea. The high priest was to remember that he was, again, representing the people of Israel before the Lord. And so Aaron is to bear the names, it says, on his shoulders before the Lord. Being high priest wasn't just, again, for his own benefit. He was serving the nation of Israel. And so as the high priest is going in, whatever he's doing, he's remembering he's carrying kind of the weight here of the nation of Israel. He's representing them before the Lord. He's serving the nation of Israel and, and ministering to the Lord on their behalf, carrying them on his shoulders. And, and isn't that what our high priest has done for us? He bore our burdens by carrying that cross to Calvary. He came to represent us before God. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is what our high priest Jesus has done for us. And again, these names were to be, it says engraved on the stones by an engraver. You know, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15 and 16 says, it says this, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What a precious thought that is to think of God, 
just engraving our names, we're, we're close to his heart here. And speaking of that, look at the breastplate now that's gonna fit over uh, the high priest here. And I'll bring that slide back up here. So look at verse 15 with me of Exodus 28. As we look at the breastplate now, up there called the breastplate of judgment, but we'll talk about why that's so in a moment. But verse 15 says this, you shall make the breastplate of judgment artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen, you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square, a span shall be its length and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a, j a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. Verse 21, and the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the 12 tribes. So I love that God, you know, on this breastplate now, just 12 gemstones representing the 12 tribes of Israel once again. Now, though these were people, right? Israel, uh, Jacob's sons. I mean, though these are people that oftentimes messed up, God saw them as gems for what they would become. It's the same with you and me, isn't it? You know, gemstones don't often start out very beautiful to behold, they need to go through a process, the process of refining, polishing, buffing out imperfections. It's a process that God oftentimes does with us, though we don't oftentimes enjoy it. He does it because he knows the end results are to bring us to that place where we you know, shine bright like a diamond for all you Rihanna fans out there from the Super Bowl halftime show, but we won't get into that. But shining bright like a diamond and just being polished up, this is what God does. And he takes us through processes where we sometimes get, you know, polished up. We get kind of grinded down maybe. We, we have to have a bit of work, but the end goal is God desires to bring us through shining like gems here. Now, one thing I hope you're catching here is that God loves colors, right? We've seen them everywhere. In the tabernacle, the way that the tabernacle would be uh, designed when you'd go into the tabernacle, nothing super to behold from the outside, but when you go in, you see all these beautiful colors and, and, and um, artistic work in there is beautiful. We see it here on the garments of the priest and these gemstones would be radiating a glorious shine on that breastplate of that high priest. Strikingly, the stones mentioned in verse 17 and 19 appeared in the Garden of Eden. If you read Ezekiel chapter 28, you'll see that. And we see it also in Revelation 21, verse 19 uh, to 20. It says this, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the 11th jacinth, and the 12th amethyst. So we see that these gems that pointed backward to the Garden of Eden, but also points forward. It's going from glory to glory. We see the story of God dwelling with his people here. And so in Revelation, we see in the foundations of the new Jerusalem, all these beautiful jewels. And you just think about God, who would be the light in that place. Think about the amazing colors that would be taking place here just the radiating glow and, and beauty that we're gonna be seeing in heaven. I think we're gonna be seeing and, and hearing things that we've never seen or heard 
before. It's gonna be amazing to behold. Now, we're not able to kind of determine all these jewels with precision or give some you know, spiritual meaning to all these, but uh, you can look at that list there and begin to see what each of those jewels would kind of represent or at least the color that they would be um, radiating there. And again, just to think about the beauty that we're gonna see in heaven and just to think of the beauty that God is associating with the work of service by a high priest there in the tabernacle that would be beautiful to behold inside. Well, continuing on, it says in verse 22, you shall make chains for the breastplate at the end like braided cords of pure gold. And you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate. And the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings, put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. Verse 26, you shall make two rings of gold put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod. And two other rings of gold you shall make and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod toward its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod and so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. So earlier, we saw how the names of Israel would be on the onyx stones on the shoulder of the ephod of the, of the high priest. But now we see they're not just to be carried on the shoulders, they're to be put over the heart of the high priest on this breastplate here. He's bearing the names over his heart in ministry. And, and again, I wanna remind you as a church, we're all called to be ministers. We're all called to be actively serving one another and serving the Lord. And that's exactly what a minister is, is simply a servant. So please don't, when I talk about ministry or ministers, don't just go, oh, phew, I'm off the hook. That's just, you know, you pastors uh, there in the church. You guys are the ones that this word is for. No, it's for all of us here. But understand in, in ministry, as we're seeing so fittingly with this breastplate, we're not just to be serving others. We're not just to be kind of carrying the, the burden of others. It's that we're to have a heart for them, we're to love them. And it's only when we see people as God sees them. And how does God see them as these precious gems? It's only when we see people as God sees them that we'll be able to serve them in love and out of love. Verse 30 says, and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the urim and the thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So now we've got this Urim and Thummim, which we're not exactly sure what these were. If they're two stones, now what they're called or what they, they mean is lights and perfections. And so some believe that maybe it was like a, one white stone and one black stone and they would tuck them in the pouch in the, in the breastplate or, or uh, behind the breastplate and they would be used for uh, you know, decisions that were needing to be made to bring about areas of, of judgment. And it's kind of like the original eight ball. Anybody have an eight ball back in the day? It's like, you know, okay, should I date this girl or not? And you shake it up, it's like, 
no way. You're like, no, I must have not shaken that right. You're like, you know, the eighth time it finally says yes. It's like, oh, thank you, Magic 8-Ball. That's kind of like the original 8-Ball here. And so they were to take, you know, uh, whether there's a decision, like a yes or a no, uh, perhaps they would take one out and one would be white, one would be black, and one would determine whether it's a yes or no. We're not sure exactly how it works. Some, maybe it's like casting lots or like rolling the dice somehow. We're not sure exactly, but they would have these in there as a way of, of deciding. Now, we do know that this is not to be their go-to for discerning God's will because they had everything they needed just through the, the law of God, through the word of God. God was already showing them how they were to walk obediently and how they were to carry out the will of God. So many people today want a clear yes or no response for decisions. They're, they're, they're you know, quick to go to you know, psychic hotlines or dream analysts or fortune tellers, but typically God just calls us to live according to his word and these other decisions begin to fall into place as we just align ourselves with God and his word. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 3 to 5 talks about, you know, the will of God being your sanctification. So we don't need to rely on gimmicks. We don't read much more. We, we have a couple accounts in scripture of the Urim and Thummim being used, but we don't read much more of it throughout. And then the last we see of any kind of casting of lots was when in the uh, apostles, when they're looking to replace Judas, the apostles are all meeting together like, well, we need, we need to get the 12th guy again, 12th man, let's cast lots. And it falls on Matthias and then we never hear anything more about Matthias. They weren't called to do that. Is it possible that God already had somebody all lined up in Paul? But the apostles jumped the gun and grabbed somebody so we don't hear of any kind of casting lots after that. Again, God's given us his word that we need to follow uh, to, again, just know his will for our lives. Now, chapter 28, verse 31, we look at the robe now um, that again sat under the ephod. Um, and it says in verse 31, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail so that it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around. Kind of sounds like a bit of a nursery rhyme there. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out that he may not die. That's interesting. Now, the robe, like I said, was under the ephod, was the basic covering of the priest. It was of one seamless piece. Remember, Jesus wore a, a seamless robe, and this is reflected. Um, this reflected just that role, the the high priest in in wearing that robe. Picture Jesus' perfect character that was without fault. It was seamless. Now, again, there were pomegranates all around the hem, and that pictured the the fruitfulness of ministry that the high priest was to be engaged in. The bells in between each of the the, the pomegranates there on the hem showed and sounded that the high priest was faithfully at work in the tabernacle. People knew, is there activity, is there service going on in the tabernacle? They would know because the high priest would be moving, the bells would be sounded. Remember, nobody could go in the tabernacle except 
the, the priest. That was the, the priestly tribe of the Levites. Not everybody had the luxury going inside the tabernacle, but they would hear and know when the high priest was, was in there. And so the bells would be sounding. And so this really, again, pictures for us what our priestly walk should be like. We should be moving about with fruitfulness, but also with faithfulness as we minister to the Lord and for his people, leaving that witness in all that we do, a fruitful witness, sounding uh, forth just the, the good news of, of Jesus Christ and the, um, the work of service and ministry unto him. And then we look at the, the turban and the tunic and the sash in this um, next part here. Look at verse 36. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So the priest would wear this turban that you see pictured there. It was a wound linen headpiece, but what was on that turban is of special importance because there there'd be that gold plate across the turban that you see that would read holiness to the Lord. Holiness to the Lord would be engraved upon that gold plate that sat on the turban. Now what a great thing that would be because it'd be a constant reminder that the priest was to be holy before God, that he was to be, again, set apart to the service and the ministry and the devotion of God. And that was not just to be in his actions, but it was also to be in his thinking too. Quite often those spiritual battles are won or lost right in the mind. And so right over his mind is that reminder, holiness to the Lord. The high priest was to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of God, just as we're called to do as believers. And he was to be moving ahead in a way that honored the Lord and caused him to be seen as a worker approved of God. There was to be a real distinction and a reverence in his activity as he approached God. Now, sometimes, you know, we can look at holiness as a real restrictive or burdensome thing, can't we? And you've heard me talk about this a lot because I think it's important for us as Christians to, to kind of get this down because when we talk about, you know, being holy, the Lord says, be holy as I'm holy, we go, oh my goodness, how can I ever do that? And that means if I'm gonna be holy, like that means I just can't have any fun because fun and holiness certainly can't go together, can they? Don't they seem opposite? And we can sometimes think of holiness as being so restrictive and burdensome, but again, as we saw at the beginning of tonight here that holiness is simply being set apart to God. It's very ordinary things that when are devoted to the Lord become holy. Holiness isn't something that's to be restrictive or to be a, a burden. It's to be something that brings wholeness and happiness to your life. You see, sin is that which robs you, it steals, it, it destroys. There's nothing that you gain from sin. Sin can only take away, but holiness adds. Holiness enriches a life. 
You wanna, you wanna be walking in joy and excitement and happiness? Then live a holy life that's set apart, set apart from the world and set apart to the Lord. Because the world cannot give you anything, but God and in Christ we gain everything. People's lives were enriched when they encountered the holiness of Jesus, weren't they? And they found something special that they were missing out on. That's why people wanted to flock around Jesus for the most part. I pray that you guys are finding the enriching life as you live holy to the Lord. May that be stamped upon our foreheads as we live, as we go, as we function, just holiness to the Lord. It says in verse 39, you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen and you shall make the sash of woven work. So the sash now would of course go around the waist, help secure the ephod there around the uh, high priest. And so that's kind of the, the general, the tunic is mentioned there again. That's um, again, kind of the undergarment there that sat under the robe. And so we see all the kind of garments of the high priest. But then remember the high priest, only one person served as the high priest. And that, you know, was, was uh, passed down the line, but there was only one high priest, but there were multiple priests. So the high priest definitely stood out among the rest. But now we look at verse 40 to see just the garments of the other priests, and they were much more simple. In fact, I think you gotta, there we go. So there's the regular priest garments. That's what we read here next, verse 40. It says this, for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics and you shall make sashes for them and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. So only Aaron's sons could serve as high priests and they ministered in their roles. They were to do so with great reverence. Now they too, again, had a guide of what they were to wear when they weren't actively serving as a high priest, they were serving as, as priests and uh, their wardrobe was a little less complicated, but they still had to follow God's um, ordained pattern and blueprint for what to wear and they were to do so in a way that honored God. In other words, they were to be properly covered, right? Again, what do we, we read there? That um, their linen trousers, uh, were to sit on their waist and go down to their thighs, it was, again, to cover any kind of nakedness. There was to be no, no flesh exposed in the ministry and in the service of the Lord. There's no room for the flesh to get in the way when we serve the Lord. Anytime that we allow the flesh to get in the way or to minister in the flesh, that's a work that the Lord doesn't recognize. It's a work that the Lord won't use or allow to prosper. So we need to continually do things in the prescribed way, do it in the strength of the Lord and to do it unto the Lord. Now notice, and I love this too, because 
The Lord says there to be linen trousers there in verse 42. Look what we read in Ezekiel 44, 18. It says, they shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. Isn't that great? God doesn't want ministry to be a sweat. God doesn't want service unto the Lord to be a burden. We shouldn't be sweating it out. We should be relying upon the Spirit, allowing Him to lead us into, and to empower us. And when we allow that to happen, when we do those things unto the Lord and for the Lord, we don't need to sweat it out. We can just rejoice, relax, and allow that service to be just such a joy and blessing. Ministry is not to be a sweat. If we're experiencing more perspiration than inspiration, then we're not doing things God's way. So, and notice again, verse 40, when they follow things this way, what does it say at the end of verse 40? It'd be for glory and beauty. Once again, there'd be great blessing attached to this ministry. Chapter 29, you guys bearing with me here? You doing all right? Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna cruise through this chapter because now we move from looking at the garments of the priesthood to, to the dedication of the priesthood, all right? And we look at what's gonna be um, incorporated in just kind of um, commissioning them and ordaining them into the ministry. Um, lots of sacrifices here. If, if there's any real, you know, animal lovers, you might be a little offended today. Just a warning for you, okay? I think I'm safe though. Verse one of chapter 29, this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. Verse eight, then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and he shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So again, that word for hallow is closely linked to that word for holy that we saw earlier. It's that idea of consecration. It's that idea of separation unto the Lord. So this is the dedication of Aaron and his sons for the priestly ministry. We also see just in those first nine verses, this wonderful progression of salvation that's kind of tied to uh, the, the ordination and the dedication of the priest. Because first of all, what happens? They are brought and they are washed. Now that preceded all else, right? This was a full cleansing. It was done publicly. It could be a little bit humbling to be washed in front of everybody, but it shows that if we wanna be cleansed of sin, we must walk in humility. We must recognize our need for a washing and come before the Lord. And this big cleansing was a one-time thing. After this, they just needed to wash their hands and feet. Not that they would ever, you know, never have a shower again. I would certainly hope that they would, but they would never need this ceremonial cleansing done in this way again. It was done once ceremonially in this way. And, and we see that too with our relationship with God. When we come before the Lord, we need a cleansing, we need forgiveness. 
But praise the Lord, when we come to him, we're born again, we're cleansed and made new, and we don't need to be re-cleansed every time we mess up. There might be times we get dirty. Yes, we go about in this world, and we might pick up some dirt. But remember what Jesus said to Peter when he's washing the disciples' feet. Peter comes out and he says, oh Lord, well, if you're gonna wash me, then don't just wash my feet, but all of me. Jesus says, you don't need to be washed again. I've already cleansed you, but just need to do your feet. And so it's the same with us when we sin, it certainly affects our relationship with God, but we're called in 1 John 1, 9 to come and confess our sins, and when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come to him to be restored in relationship, not to be resaved. This is a one-time thing when we come to him for the removal of sin and cleansing and forgiveness. So here's that idea of the priest coming. And then after they were cleansed, what happened? They were clothed. Garments in scripture often speak of our character and life as believers. We're to put off the old man, it tells us oftentimes, Ephesians chapter uh, four and Colossians chapter three, put off the old man and what? Put on the new man. So it's the idea of like when we come to Christ, we are given new life in him now. We're cleansed, but now we're not just having things removed, we gain new life in Christ. We put on the new man, this new garment, so the priests are clothed. And after being clothed, what happened next? They were what? Anybody? Washed, clothed, and then what? Anointed with oil. What's oil a picture of in scripture? The Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? When we come to Christ, he cleanses us. We are given the new man, but not just a new man. Now we have a guarantee. We have a deposit put on us. The Holy Spirit is given to us, takes up residence in us now. And it's through the Holy Spirit anointing us and overflowing in us that we can be empowered for ministry and service to the Lord now. What a great picture we have there. Chapter 29, verse 10 goes on to say this, you shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Uh, you shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal you shall burn with fire outside the camp because it is a, and this whole thing is a sin offering, it says. Now, their sin was symbolically transferred to the sacrifice of a bull. The priest says would lay their hands upon the head of that bull. And it's kind of like this idea of identification. They are, there's this transfer taking place now. Just as Jesus took all of our sins, transferred them upon himself. He came as a perfect sacrifice to atone for all of our sin and wrongdoing. And he bore that punishment that we ourselves deserved. Not only did he take our sin, but now he gave us his forgiveness and righteousness. That's the best exchange that you could ever receive. And notice the flesh of the bull would be burned where? Outside the camp. Again, that's fitting because nothing in the flesh is accepted before God. It's not to be put on the altar. It's not to be burned before the Lord. It's to be taken out. Again, that flesh is to have nothing to do with the Lord. So this is a sin offering. Leviticus 
one to seven um, details all the various offerings. We're touching on some of them here, but Leviticus chapters one to seven go through much more detail, all these various offerings there. And then in verse 15, it says, you shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with the pieces, and, or with its pieces and with its head. And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. So here's the burnt offering now, as it says, and here the whole ram was sacrificed upon the altar. See, we too are to give our all to God as we live as living sacrifices to God. Romans 12, one says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Because God gave us his all, he calls us now to give us everything in sweet surrender to him. And guess what? Bible says, we do this, and I like how Paul words this. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's because God has shown us mercy that we come freely to say, Lord, my life is yours. We don't do it to get something from God. We do it because we've already received all from God. We've received the amazing grace and mercy, forgiveness of sin and salvation in and through Jesus Christ. He's already given us everything that we need. So we come now in response to say, Lord, I'm laying my life down as a living sacrifice. And it says we lay our life down as a living sacrifice that we truly begin to live the abundant life. Life isn't gonna be enjoyed when you're living it for yourself, when you're hoping that all things are gonna happen according to what you desire and what you want. It's only when we lay our lives down that we begin to enjoy the abundant life. That's why Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a life of sacrifice, living sacrifice. And just as this sacrifice here, this ram in Exodus 29 was a, notice what it says in, in verse 18, it says sweet aroma before the Lord, so too our lives become that sweet smelling fragrance to him. We're gonna talk about that on Sunday in 2 Corinthians, I think. I can't remember where we are, but I think we're getting to that passage, but we'll wait. Verse 19 says, you shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. Then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. You shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him and he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Here's the consecration offering now being given. Now for us to be consecrated, again, given over in devotion and set apart to the Lord, we must see that the blood of Christ has first of all paved the way and it's under the blood of Christ by which we can stand and be wholly consecrated to God. We need to identify with his sacrifice. And so here now the priest notices that blood is to be placed upon them on the right earlobe. 
on the right thumb, on the right toe, that side of strength. And so they're to recognize, you know, I can do nothing apart from the Lord. It's only by his covering that I can do that. And so the right earlobe, what are you listening to? What voice are you following? The right thumb, what are your hands being used for? Are you carrying out the will of God or your own will? The right toe, where are you going? And who are you following? Are we abiding with Jesus and staying close to him? What are our tracks revealing about our life? Are we living that consecrated life set apart for the Lord and as a witness of the Lord? We need to live set apart, hallowed for the Lord, it says. Verse 22, also you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. So this is the wave offering now. And this is a portion that was given to the priests also for their provision and for their sustenance. The priests would be provided of their daily food in a sense through the sacrifices that were being brought. But notice we read in verse 22, the rich inward parts of the sacrifice represent the deity of Christ. Then we got the loaf of bread, which pictures Christ coming as that bread of life and, and his humanity. We see this dual nature of Christ that's being brought into the hands of the priests and their hands were to be filled with this sacrifice. You know, we can find our hands at times full in ministry, can't we? We can find at times in, in serving the Lord, like we just feel like, oh man, we got a lot that we're kind of juggling a lot, we're trying to hold on to here but we're not to be full of the ministry, we're to be full of Christ. We're to be full of Jesus. You see, this sacrifice now was to be waved before the altar, the place of ministry, and waved before the Lord. It's lifted up before the Lord. And this offering is there between the altar and between the priest. In other words, Christ is to remain between us and the place of ministry. No amount of ministry can flourish unless we're experiencing intimacy with Jesus. Here the priest is holding these offerings and this picture of Christ in the contents that are there. And we have to understand that unless I'm taking time to be with the Lord, there's no amount of ministry that's gonna flow out of that. Ministry must flow out of intimacy with Jesus, spending time with him, worshiping him, abiding in him. Ministry should never be removed from Jesus. When it is, that's when it begins to become dry, burdensome, tiring. It's not what God intends. Ministries to flow out of intimacy with Jesus. Pictured here in that wave offering. 
Verse 26, then he shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of the consecration, he shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering which is waved and the thigh of the heave offering which is raised of that which is for Aaron and of that which is for his sons. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever. For it is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. That is their heave offering to the Lord. So Aaron and his sons, again, were to be compensated uh, for their service at the altar is to be offered to the Lord first as he's the giver of all good things. But then the priests were to enjoy a portion of that sacrifice for themselves. And in so doing, it was kind of like they're sitting down to have like this common meal with the Lord. God received his, they received theirs, and there was this place of fellowship and communion. David Guzik says, consecration always takes place in the context of fellowship. So this communion time was the only thing that'd be repeated from this ceremony on an ongoing basis into the priestly ministry. And again, speaks of that sustenance in Christ. And that continues on as we serve him. Verse 29 goes on to say this, and the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle and meeting to minister in the holy place. So again, garments speak of our character and that new nature in and through Christ, right? So we're to be living as these examples to others because we're going to be passing on something to others whether we think so or not. Here's Aaron the high priest. These garments are to be, you know, consecrated and then passed on to the next high priest. What are we passing on to our next generation? What are we passing on to our kids? You ever see a child that is just so like out of control and you're like going, man, how did that child get like that? And then you see the parents and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense, okay, I get it now. What are we passing on? What are our kids learning as they're watching us? May we pass down holy living, a consecrated life to our children and to others. Verse 31, and you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them, but an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or the bread remains until the morning, then he shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it's holy. Verse 35, thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I've commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them and you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it and the altar shall be most holy. Whoever touches the altar must be holy. So here's now, talks about the seven days. That's the whole consecration ceremony is taking place. It's, it's taking place for seven days and these offerings are being repeated each day for this consecration ceremony that lasted seven days. And now, verse 38, to close out the chapter, verse 38, we look at these offerings that now are to be offered up daily at the tabernacles. The priests now are, are 
dedicated and commissioned into ministry as the, the tabernacle begins to be in operation here. So sacrifices are to be offered up by the priest daily. It says in verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and you shall offer it with the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. There shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle and meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle and meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. Verse 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So here we see these ongoing daily sacrifices both in the morning and in the evening that were to be done. Now we read through that and again this whole chapter could feel kind of weighty or heady you can look at this and go, man, these sacrifices seem perhaps excessive. But again, that's the reality of sin, my friends, that sin destroys. And God is revealing that sin is that which keeps people from him. But praise the Lord, he's provided a way. He's provided a way for people to approach him. And you look at the last part of this chapter and you just see the heart of God here. I will dwell among the children of Israel that, and I will be their God. They shall know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. God's heart is that he might dwell among them. God is providing the means. We don't have to question and wonder and get, you know, all bend our shape over sacrifices being made we should be rejoicing in the fact that God's provided a way that he might dwell among the people. And we rejoice today that all these things simply pointed to and were a picture of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill because Hebrews goes on now to share that he is the better sacrifice. He is the better high priest. It's all wrapped up in and completed in Jesus Christ, who's made all possible for us to come and be redeemed, to be delivered out of the place that we were so we could find life in him now today. He's the greater priesthood. We all have that need met in and through Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 10, in closing now, worship team, you can come up. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, and that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We praise Jesus 
for all he's done. You read through a couple chapters like this and you go, man, that's a lot to take in. But let us rejoice that we get to just take in Jesus who's provided it all for us now. That we might experience not just God dwelling among us, but Christ dwelling in us. Praise the Lord for that.